Book One, Chapter Three, Part Two, of The Old Wife's Tale, by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale, by Arnold Bennett. Book One. Mrs. Baines. Chapter Three. A Battle. Four. At supper, with her red, downcast eyes, she had returned to sheer girlishness again, overawed by her mother. The meal had an unusual aspect. Mr. Povey, safe from the dentist, but having lost two teeth in two days, was being fed on slops, bread and milk to it. He sat near the fire, the others had cold pork, half a cold apple pie, and cheese. But Sophia only pretended to eat. Each time she tried to swallow, the tears came into her eyes, and her throat shut itself up. Mrs. Baines and Constance had a too careful air of eating just as usual. Mrs. Baines's handsome ringlets dominated the table under the gas. "'I'm not so set up with my pastry to-day,' observed Mrs. Baines, critically munching a fragment of pie-crust. She rang a little handbell. Maggie appeared from the cave. She wore a plain, white, bibless apron, but no cap. "'Maggie, will you have some pie?' "'Yes, if you can spare it, ma'am.' This was Maggie's customary answer to offers of food. "'We can always spare it, Maggie,' said her mistress, as usual. "'Sophia, if you aren't going to use that plate, give it to me.' Maggie disappeared with liberal pie. Mrs. Baines then talked to Mr. Povey about his condition, and in particular as to the need for precautions against taking cold in the bereaved gum. She was a brave and determined woman. From start to finish she behaved as though nothing whatever in the household, except her pastry and Mr. Povey, had deviated that day from the normal. She kissed Constance and Sophia with the most exact equality, and called them my chucks, when they went up to bed. Constance, excellent kind heart, tried to imitate her mother's tactics as the girls undressed in their room. She thought she could not do better than ignore Sophia's deplorable state. "'Mother's new dress is quite finished, and she's going to wear it on Sunday,' said she, blandly. "'If you say another word, I'll scratch your eyes out!' Sophia turned on her viciously, with a catch in her voice, and then began to sob at intervals. She did not mean this threat, but its utterance gave her relief. Constance, faced with the fact that her mother's shoes were too big for her, decided to preserve her eyesight. Long after the gas was out, rare sobs from Sophia shook the bed, and they both lay awake in silence. "'I suppose you and mother have been talking me over finely to-day?' Sophia burst forth, to Constance's surprise, in a wet voice. "'No,' said Constance soothingly. "'Mother only told me.' "'Told you what?' "'That you wanted to be a teacher.' "'And I will be, too,' said Sophia bitterly. "'You don't know Mother,' thought Constance. But she made no audible comment. There was another detached, hard sob, and then, such is the astonishing talent of youth, they both fell asleep. The next morning, early, Sophia stood gazing out of the window at the square. It was Saturday, 
and all over the square little stalls with yellow linen roofs were being erected for the principal market of the week. In those barbaric days, Bursley had a majestic edifice, black as basalt, for the sale of dead animals by the limb and rib. It was entitled The Shambles, but vegetables, fruit, cheese, eggs, and pikelets were still sold under canvas. Eggs are now offered at five farthings apiece in a palace that cost twenty-five thousand pounds. Yet you will find people in Bursley ready to assert that things generally are not what they were, and that in particular the romance of life has gone. But until it has gone, it is never romance. To Sophia, though she was in a mood which usually stimulates the sense of the romantic, there was nothing of romance in this picturesque, tented field. It was just the market. Hull's, the leading grocer's, was already open at the extremity of the square, and a boy apprentice was sweeping the pavement in front of it. The public houses were open, several of them specialising in hot rum at 5.30 a.m. The town crier, in his blue coat with red facings, crossed the square, carrying his big bell by the tongue. There was the same shocking hole in one of Mrs. Povey's, confectioner's, window curtains, a hole which even her recent travail could scarcely excuse. Such matters it was that Sophia noticed with dull, smarting eyes. "'Sophia, you'll take your death of cold standing there like that!' She jumped. The voice was her mother's. That vigorous woman, after a calm night by the side of the paralytic, was already up and neatly dressed. She carried a bottle and an egg-cup, and a small quantity of jam in a tablespoon. "'Get into bed again, do. There's a dear. You're shivering.' White Sophia obeyed. It was true. She was shivering. Constance awoke. Mrs. Baines went to the dressing-table, and filled the egg-cup out of the bottle. "'What's that for, mother?' Constance asked sleepily. "'It's for Sophia,' said Mrs. Baines, with good cheer. "'Now, Sophia!' And she advanced with the egg-cup in one hand and the tablespoon in the other. "'What is it, mother?' asked Sophia, who well knew what it was. "'Castor oil, my dear,' said Mrs. Baines, winningly. The ludicrousness of attempting to cure obstinacy and yearnings for a freer life by means of castor oil— is perhaps less real than apparent. The strange interdependence of spirit and body, though only understood intelligently in these intelligent days, was guessed at by sensible medieval mothers. And certainly, at the period when Mrs. Baines represented modernity, castor oil was still the remedy of remedies. It had supplanted cupping, and if part of its vogue was due to its extreme unpleasantness, it had at least proved its qualities in many a contest with disease. Less than two years previously, old Dr. Harrop, father of him who told Mrs. Baines about Mrs. Povey, being then aged eighty-six, had fallen from top to bottom of his staircase. He had scrambled up, taken a dose of castor oil at once, and on the morrow was as well as if he had never seen a staircase. This episode was town property, and had sunk deep into all hearts. "'I don't want any, mother,' said Sophia in dejection. "'I'm quite well.' "'You simply ate nothing all day yesterday,' said Mrs. Baines. And she added, "'Come,' as if to say, "'there's always this silly fuss with castor oil. Don't keep me waiting.' "'I don't want any,' said Sophia, irritated and captious. The two girls lay side by side on their backs. They seemed very thin and fragile in comparison with the solidity of their mother.' 
Constance wisely held her peace. Mrs. Baines put her lips together, meaning, "'This is becoming tedious. I shall have to be angry in another moment.' "'Come,' said she again. The girls could hear her foot tapping on the floor. "'I really don't want it, mamma. Sophia thought. "'I suppose I ought to know whether I need it or not.' This was insolence. "'Sophia, will you take this medicine, or won't you?' In conflicts with her children— the mother's ultimatum always took the formula in which this phrase was cast. The girls knew, when things had arrived at the pitch of, "'Or won't you?' spoken in Mrs. Baines' firmest tone, that the end was upon them. Never had the ultimatum failed. There was a silence. "'And I'll thank you to mind your manners,' Mrs. Baines added. "'I won't take it,' said Sophia sullenly and flatly, and she hid her face in the pillow. It was a historic moment in the family life. Mrs. Baines thought the last day had come, but still she held herself in dignity, while the apocalypse roared in her ears. "'Of course I can't force you to take it,' she said with superb evenness, masking anger by compassionate grief. "'You're a big girl and a naughty girl, and if you will be ill, you must.' Upon this immense admission— Mrs. Baines departed. Constance trembled. Nor was that all. In the middle of the morning, when Mrs. Baines was pricing new potatoes at a stall at the top end of the square, and Constance choosing three pennyworth of flowers at the same stall, whom should they see, walking all alone across the empty corner by the bank, but Sophia Baines? The square was busy and populous, and Sophia was only visible behind a foreground of restless, chattering figures, but she was unmistakably seen. She had been beyond the square and was returning. Constance could scarcely believe her eyes. Mrs. Baines's heart jumped, for let it be said that the girls never, under any circumstances, went forth without permission, and scarcely ever alone. That Sophia should be at large in the town, without leave, without notice, exactly as if she were her own mistress, was a proposition which a day earlier had been inconceivable. Yet there she was, and moving with a leisureliness that must be described as effrontery. Red with apprehension, Constance wondered what would happen. Mrs. Baines said naught of her feelings, did not even indicate that she had seen the scandalous, the breathtaking sight, and they descended the square, laden with the lighter portions of what they had bought during an hour of buying. They went into the house by the King Street door, and the first thing they heard was the sound of the piano upstairs. Nothing happened. Mr. Povey had his dinner alone. Then the table was laid for them, and the bell rung, and Sophia came insolently downstairs to join her mother and sister. And nothing happened. The dinner was silently eaten, and Constance, having rendered thanks to God, Sophia rose abruptly to go. "'Sophia!' "'Yes, mother?' "'Constance, stay where you are,' said Mrs. Baines suddenly to Constance, who had meant to flee. Constance was therefore destined to be present at the happening, doubtless in order to emphasise its importance and seriousness. "'Sophia,' Mrs. Baines resumed to her younger daughter in an ominous voice, "'no, please shut the door. There's no reason why everybody in the house should hear. Come right into the room. Right in. That's it. Now—' 
"'What were you doing out in the town this morning?' Sophia was fidgeting nervously with the edge of her little black apron, and worrying a seam of the carpet with her toes. She bent her head towards her left shoulder, at first smiling vaguely. She said nothing, but every limb, every glance, every curve was speaking. Mrs. Baines sat firmly in her own rocking-chair, full of the sensation that she had, Sophia, as it were, writhing on the end of a skewer. Constance was braced into a moveless anguish. "'I will have an answer,' pursued Mrs. Baines. "'What were you doing out in the town this morning?' "'I just went out,' answered Sophia at length, still with eyes downcast, and in a rather simpering tone. "'Why did you go out? You said nothing to me about going out. I heard Constance ask you if you were coming with us to the market, and you said, very rudely, that you weren't.' "'I didn't say it rudely,' Sophia objected. "'Yes, you did, and I'll thank you not to answer back.' "'I didn't mean to say it rudely, did I, Constance?' Sophia's head turned sharply to her sister. Constance knew not where to look. "'Don't answer back,' Mrs. Baines repeated sternly, "'and don't try to drag Constance into this, for I won't have it.' "'Oh, of course Constance is always right.' observed Sophia, with an irony whose unparalleled impudence shook Mrs. Baines to her massive foundations. "'Do you want me to have to smack you, child?' Her temper flashed out, and you could see ringlets vibrating under the provocation of Sophia's sauciness. Then Sophia's lower lip began to fall and to bulge outwards, and all the muscles of her face seemed to slacken. "'You are a very naughty girl,' said Mrs. Baines, with restraint. "'I've got her,' said Mrs. Baines to herself. "'I may just as well keep my temper.' And a sob broke out of Sophia. She was behaving like a little child. She bore no trace of the young maiden, sedately crossing the square without leave and without an escort. "'I knew she was going to cry,' said Mrs. Baines, breathing relief. "'I'm waiting,' said Mrs. Baines, aloud. A second sob. Mrs. Baines manufactured patience to meet the demand. "'You tell me not to answer back, and then you say you're waiting,' Sophia blubbered thickly. "'What's that you say? How can I tell what you say if you talk like that?' But Mrs. Baines failed to hear out of discretion, which is better than valour. "'It's of no consequence,' Sophia blurted forth in a sob. She was weeping now, and tears were ricocheting off her lovely crimson cheeks onto the carpet. Her whole body was trembling. "'Don't be a great baby,' Mrs. Baines enjoined, with a touch of rough persuasiveness in her voice. "'It's you who makes me cry,' said Sophia bitterly. "'You make me cry, and then you call me a great baby.' And sobs ran through her frame, like waves one after another. She spoke so indistinctly that her mother, now, really had some difficulty in catching her words. "'Sophia!' said Mrs. Baines, with godlike calm. It is not I who makes you cry. It is your guilty conscience makes you cry. I have merely asked you a question, and I intend to have an answer. I told you. Here Sophia checked the sobs with an immense effort. What have you told me? I just went out. I will have no trifling, said Mrs. Baines. What did you go out for, and without telling me? If you had told me afterwards, when I came in, of your own accord, it might have been different. 
But no, not a word. It is I who have to ask. Now, quick, I can't wait any longer. I gave way over the castor oil, my girl, Mrs. Baines said in her own breast, but not again, not again. I don't know, Sophia murmured. What do you mean, you don't know? The sobbing recommenced tempestuously. I mean, I don't know. I just went out. Her voice rose. It was noisy, but scarcely articulate. What if I did go out? Sophia, I am not going to be talked to like this. If you think just because you're leaving school, you can do exactly as you like. Do I want to leave school? yelled Sophia, stamping. In a moment, a hurricane of emotion overwhelmed her as though that stamping of the foot had released the demons of the storm. Her face was transfigured by uncontrollable passion. "'You all want to make me miserable!' she shrieked with terrible violence. "'And now I can't even go out. You're a horrid, cruel woman, and I hate you. And you can do what you like. Put me in prison if you like. I know you'd be glad if I was dead.' She dashed from the room, banging the door with a shock that made the house rattle and she had shouted so loud that she might have been heard in the shop, and even in the kitchen. It was a startling experience for Mrs. Baines. "'Mrs. Baines, why did you saddle yourself with a witness? Why did you so positively say that you intended to have an answer?' "'Really?' she stammered, pulling her dignity about her shoulders like a garment that the wind has snatched off. "'I never dreamt that poor girl had such a dreadful temper. What a pity it is for her own sake!' It was the best she could do. Constance, who could not bear to witness her mother's humiliation, vanished very quietly from the room. She got halfway upstairs to the second floor, and then hearing the loud, rapid, painful, regular intake of sobbing breaths, she hesitated and crept down again. This was Mrs. Baines's first costly experience of the child thankless for having been brought into the world. It robbed her of her profound, absolute belief in herself. She had thought she knew everything in her house, and could do everything there. And, lo, she had suddenly stumbled against an unsuspected personality at large in her house, a sort of hard, marble affair that informed her by means of bumps that if she did not want to be hurt, she must keep out of the way. 5. On the Sunday afternoon... Mrs. Baines was trying to repose a little in the drawing-room, where she had caused a fire to be lighted. Constance was in the adjacent bedroom with her father. Sophia lay between blankets in the room overhead, with a feverish cold. This cold and her new dress were Mrs. Baines's sole consolation at the moment. She had prophesied a cold for Sophia, refuser of castor oil, and it had come. Sophia had received, for standing in her nightdress at a draughty window of a May morning, what Mrs. Baines called nature's slap in the face. As for the dress, she had worshipped God in it, and prayed for Sophia in it before dinner, and its four double rows of gimp on the skirt had been accounted a great success. With her lace-bordered mantle and her low-stringed bonnet, she had assuredly given a unique lustre to the congregation at chapel. She was stout, but the fashions, prescribing vague outlines, broad downward slopes, and vast amplitudes, were favourable to her shape. It must not be supposed that stout women of a certain age never seek to seduce the eye and trouble the meditations of man by other than moral charms. 
Mrs. Baines knew that she was comely, natty, imposing, and elegant, and the knowledge gave her real pleasure. She would look over her shoulder in the glass, as anxious as a girl, make no mistake. She did not repose. She could not. She sat thinking in exactly the same posture as Sophia's two afternoons previously. She would have been surprised to hear that her attitude, bearing, and expression powerfully recalled those of her reprehensible daughter, but it was so. A good angel made her restless, and she went idly to the window and glanced upon the empty, shuttered square. She, too, majestic matron, had strange, brief yearnings for an existence more romantic than this, shootings across her spirit's firmament of tailed comets, soft, inexplicable melancholies. The good angel, withdrawing her from such a mood, directed her gaze to a particular spot at the top of the square. She passed at once out of the room, not precisely in a hurry, yet without wasting time. In a recess under the stairs, immediately outside the door, was a box about a foot square and eighteen inches deep, covered with black American cloth. She bent down and unlocked this box, which was padded within, and contained the Baines silver tea-service. She drew from the box a teapot, sugar-bowl, milk-jug, sugar-tongues, hot-water-jug, and cake-stand, a flattish dish with an arching semicircular handle, chased vessels, silver without and silver gilt within, glittering heirlooms that shone in the dark corner like the secret pride of respectable families. These she put on a tray that always stood on end in the recess. Then she looked upwards through the banisters to the second floor. "'Maggie!' she piercingly whispered. "'Yes, ma'am,' came a voice. "'Are you dressed?' "'Yes, ma'am, I'm just coming.' "'Well, put on your muslin, apron,' Mrs. Brains implied. Maggie understood. "'Take these for tea,' said Mrs. Baines, when Maggie descended. "'Better rub them over. You know where the cake is, that new one, the best cups and the silver spoons.' They both heard a knock at the side door, far off below. "'There!' exclaimed Mrs. Baines. "'Now, take these right down into the kitchen before you open.' "'Yes, ma'am,' said Maggie, departing. Mrs. Baines was wearing a black alpaca apron. She removed it, and put on another one of black satin embroidered with yellow flowers, which, by merely inserting her arm into the chamber, she had taken off the chest of drawers in her bedroom. Then she fixed herself in the drawing-room. Maggie returned, rather short of breath, convoying the visitor. "'Ah, Miss Chetwind!' said Mrs. Baines, rising to welcome. "'I am sure I am delighted to see you. I saw you coming down the square, and I said to myself, "'Now I do hope Miss Chetwind isn't going to forget us.' Miss Chetwind, simpering momentarily, came forward with that self-conscious, slightly histrionic air, which is one of the penalties of pedagogy. She lived under the eyes of her pupils. Her life was one ceaseless effort to avoid doing anything which might influence her charges for evil, or shock the natural sensitiveness of their parents. She had to wind her earthly way through a forest of the most delicate susceptibilities, fern fronds that stretched across the path, and that she must not even accidentally disturb with her skirt as she passed. No wonder she walked mincingly. No wonder she had a habit of keeping her elbows close to her sides, and drawing her mantle tight in the streets. Her prospectus talked about a sound and religious course of training. 
study embracing the usual branches of English, with music by a talented master, drawing, dancing, and calisthenics. Also needlework, plain and ornamental. Also moral influence, and finally about terms which are very moderate, and every particular, with references to parents and others, furnished on application. Sometimes, too, without application. As an illustration of the delicacy of fern fronds, that single word, dancing, had nearly lost her Constance and Sophia seven years before. She was a pinched virgin, aged forty, and not well off. In her family the gift of success had been monopolised by her elder sister. For these characteristics, Mrs. Baines, as a matron in easy circumstances, pitied Miss Chetwin. On the other hand, Miss Chetwin could choose ground from which to look down upon Mrs. Baines, who, after all, was in trade. Miss Chetwin had no trace of the local accent. She spoke with a southern refinement, which the five towns, while making fun of it, envied. All her O's had a genteel leaning towards ow, as ritualism leans towards Romanism, and she was the fount of etiquette, a wonder of correctness, in the eyes of her pupil's parents, not so much a perfect lady as a perfect lady, so that it was an extremely nice question whether, upon the whole, Mrs. Baines secretly condescended to Miss Chetwind, or Miss Chetwind to Mrs. Baines. Perhaps Mrs. Baines, by virtue of her wifehood, carried the day. Miss Chetwind, carefully and precisely seated, opened the conversation by explaining that, even if Mrs. Baines had not written, she would have called in any case, as she made a practice of calling at the homes of her pupils in vacation time, which was true. Mrs. Baines, it should be stated, had on Friday afternoon sent to Miss Chetwind one of her most luxurious notes, lavender-coloured paper with scalloped edges, the sweetest mode of the day, to announce in her Italian hand that Constance and Sophia would both leave school at the end of next term, and giving reasons in regard to Sophia. Before the visitor had got very far, Maggie came in with a lacquered tea-caddy, and the silver teapot and a silver spoon on a lacquered tray. Mrs. Baines, while continuing to talk, chose a key from her bunch, unlocked the tea-caddy, and transferred four teaspoonfuls of tea from it to the teapot, and relocked the caddy. "'Strawberry,' she mysteriously whispered to Maggie, and Maggie disappeared, bearing the tray and its contents. "'And how is your sister? It's quite a long time since she was down here,' Mrs. Baines went on to Miss Chetwind, after whispering, "'Strawberry.' The remark was merely in the way of small talk, for the hostess felt a certain unwilling hesitation to approach the topic of daughters, but it happened to suit the social purpose of Miss Chetwin to a nicety. Miss Chetwin was a vessel brimming with great tidings. "'She is very well, thank you,' said Miss Chetwin, and her expression grew exceedingly vivacious. Her face glowed with pride as she added, "'Of course, everything is changed now.' "'Indeed?' murmured Mrs. Baines, with polite curiosity. "'Yes,' said Miss Chetwin. "'You've not heard?' "'No,' said Mrs. Baines. Miss Chetwin knew that she had not heard. "'About Elizabeth's engagement to the Reverend Archibald Jones?' "'It is the fact that Mrs. Baines was taken aback. "'She did nothing indiscreet. "'She did not give vent to her excusable amazement "'that the elder Miss Chetwin should be engaged to anyone at all, 
as some woman would have done in the stress of the moment. She kept her presence of mind. "'This is really most interesting,' said she. It was, for Archibald Jones was one of the idols of the Wesleyan Methodist connection, a special preacher famous throughout England. At anniversaries and trust sermons, Archibald Jones had probably no rival. His Christian name helped him. It was a luscious, resounding mouthful for admirers. He was not an itinerant minister, migrating every three years. His function was to direct the affairs of the book-room, the publishing department of the connection. He lived in London, and shot out into the provinces at weekends, preaching on Sundays, and giving a lecture tinctured with bookishness in the chapel on Monday evenings. In every town he visited there was competition for the privilege of entertaining him. He had zeal, indefatigable energy, and a breezy wit. He was a widower of fifty, and his wife had been dead for twenty years. It had seemed as if women were not for this bright star. And here Elizabeth Chetwynd, who had left the five towns a quarter of a century before at the age of twenty, had caught him. Austere, moustached, formidable, desiccated, she must have done it with her powerful intellect. It must be a union of intellects. He had been impressed by hers, and she by his, and then their intellects had kissed. Within a week, fifty thousand women in forty counties had pictured to themselves the osculation of intellects, and shrugged their shoulders, and decided once more that men were incomprehensible. These great ones in London, falling in love like the rest. But no, love was a ribald and voluptuous word to use in such a matter as this. It was generally felt that the Reverend Archibald Jones and Miss Chetwynd the Elder would lift marriage to what would now be termed an astral plane. After tea had been served, Mrs. Baines gradually recovered her position, both in her own private esteem and in the deference of Miss Aileen Chetwynd. "'Yes,' said she, "'you can talk about your sister, and you can call him Archibald, and you can mince up your words, but have you got a tea-service like this? Can you conceive more perfect strawberry-jam than this? Did not my dress cost more than you spend on your clothes in a year? Has a man ever looked at you?' "'All in all,' "'Is there not something about my situation, in short, something?' She did not say this aloud. She in no way deviated from the scrupulous politeness of a hostess. There was nothing in even her tone to indicate that Mrs. John Baines was a personage. Yet it suddenly occurred to Miss Chetwynd that her pride in being the prospective sister-in-law of the Reverend Archibald Jones would be better for a while in her pocket.' and she inquired after Mr. Baines. After this, the conversation limped somewhat. "'I suppose you weren't surprised by my letter,' said Mrs. Baines. "'He was and he wasn't,' answered Miss Chetwynd, in her professional manner, and not her manner of a prospective sister-in-law. "'Of course I am naturally sorry to lose two such good pupils, but we can't keep our pupils for ever.' She smiled. She was not without fortitude. It is easier to lose pupils than to replace them. Still, a pause. What you say of Sophia is perfectly true, perfectly. She is quite as advanced as Constance. Still, another pause, and a more rapid enunciation. Sophia is by no means an ordinary girl. I hope she hasn't been a very great trouble to you. Oh, no, 
exclaimed Miss Chetwynd. "'So far and I have got on very well together. "'I have always tried to appeal to her reason. "'I have never forced her. "'Now with some girls, in some ways, "'I look upon Sophia as the most remarkable girl, "'not pupil, but the most remarkable, "'what shall I say, individuality that I have ever met with.' "'And her demeanour added, "'And mind you, this is something from me.' "'Indeed!' said Mrs. Baines. She told herself, "'I am not your common foolish parent. I see my children impartially. I am incapable of being flattered concerning them.' Nevertheless, she was flattered, and the thought shaped itself that really Sophia was no ordinary girl. "'I suppose she has talked to you about becoming a teacher?' asked Miss Chetwynd, taking a morsel of the unparalleled jam." She held the spoon with her thumb and three fingers. Her fourth finger, in matters of honest labour, would never associate with the other three. Delicately curved, it always drew proudly away from them. "'Has she mentioned this to you?' Mrs. Baines demanded, startled. "'Oh, yes,' said Miss Chetwynd, "'several times. Sophia is a very secretive girl, very. But I think I may say that I have always had her confidence.' There have been times when Sophia and I have been very near each other. Elizabeth was much struck with her. Indeed, I may tell you that in one of her last letters to me she spoke of Sophia, and said that she had mentioned her to Mr. Jones, and that Mr. Jones remembered her quite well. Impossible for even a wise, uncommon parent not to be affected by such an announcement. "'I dare say your sister will give up her school now.' observed Mrs. Baines, to divert attention from her self-consciousness. "'Oh, no!' And this time Mrs. Baines had genuinely shocked Miss Chetwynd. "'Nothing would induce Elizabeth to give up the cause of education. Archibald takes the keenest interest in the school. Oh, no! Not for worlds!' "'Then you think Sophia would make a good teacher?' asked Mrs. Baines, with apparent inconsequence and with a smile. But the words marked an epoch in her mind. All was over. "'I think that she is very much set on it, and—' "'That wouldn't affect her father or me,' said Mrs. Baines quickly. "'Certainly not. I merely say that she is very much set on it. Yes, she would, at any rate, make a teacher far superior to the average.' "'That girl has got the better of her mother without me,' she reflected. "'Ah, here is dear Constance.' Constance, tempted beyond her strength by the sounds of the visit and the colloquy, had slipped into the room. "'I've left both doors open, mother,' she excused herself for quitting her father, and kissed Miss Chetwynd. She blushed, but she blushed happily, and really made a most creditable debut as a young lady. Her mother rewarded her by taking her into the conversation, and history was soon made. So Sophia was apprenticed to Miss Aileen Chetwynd. Mrs. Baines bore herself greatly. It was Miss Chetwynd who had urged, and her respect for Miss Chetwynd. Also, somehow, the Reverend Archibald Jones came into the cause. Of course, the idea of Sophia ever going to London was ridiculous. Ridiculous! Mrs. Baines secretly feared that the ridiculous might happen, but with the Reverend Archibald Jones on the spot, the worst could be faced. Sophia must understand that even the apprenticeship in Bursley was merely a trial. They would see how things went on. She had to thank Miss Chetwynd. 
"'I made Miss Chetwind come and talk to Mother,' said Sophia magnificently, one night to simple Constance, as if to imply, "'Your Miss Chetwind is my washpot.' To Constance, Sophia's mere enterprise was just as staggering as her success. Fancy her deliberately going out that Saturday morning after her mother's definite decision to enlist Miss Chetwind in her aid. There is no need to insist on the tragic grandeur of Mrs. Baines's renunciation, a renunciation which implied her acceptance of a change in the balance of power in her realm. Part of its tragedy was that none, not even Constance, could divine the intensity of Mrs. Baines's suffering. She had no confidant. She was incapable of showing a wound. But when she lay awake at night by the organism which had once been her husband— she dwelt long and deeply on the martyrdom of her life. What had she done to deserve it? Always had she conscientiously endeavoured to be kind, just, patient, and she knew herself to be sagacious and prudent. In the frightful and unguessed trials of her existence as a wife, surely she might have been granted consolations as a mother. Yet no, it had not been. And she felt all the bitterness of age against youth, Youth, egotistic, harsh, cruel, uncompromising. Youth that is so crude, so ignorant of life, so slow to understand. She had Constance, yes, but it would be twenty years before Constance could appreciate the sacrifice of judgment and of pride which her mother had made, in a sudden decision, during that rambling, starched, simpering interview with Miss Aileen Chetwynd. Probably Constance thought that she had yielded to Sophia's passionate temper. Impossible to explain to Constance that she had yielded to nothing but a perception of Sophia's complete inability to hear reason and wisdom. Ah, uh, sometimes as she lay in the dark, she would, in fancy, snatch her heart from her bosom and fling it down before Sophia, bleeding, and cry, "'See what I carry about with me on your account!' Then she would take it back and hide it again, and sweeten her bitterness with wise admonitions to herself. All this because Sophia, aware that if she stayed in the house, she would be compelled to help in the shop, chose an honourable activity which freed her from the danger. Heart, how absurd of you to bleed! End of chapter 3